in the grand scheme of things, what can you actually accomplish in life? With your limited time and resources, what are you able to do? Maybe make it so far in your profession or make a cushy retirement for yourself, raise a family, take care of your family. But I mean, what can you actually do? Can you do anything beyond just influencing a few people around you for a few years? Like maybe even better, what are you allowed to do in life? Like what, what permissions do you have? What keys are on your key ring? What licenses do you have licenses for? And what, what connections do you have? Can you go anywhere you want or talk to whomever you wish? And even then, can you get them to do whatever you need? What can you actually do, Maybe even in your school or your workplace, in our city, in our country? If you're being honest and realistic, do you really think that you can actually change the world? Now, I don't mean to depress you today. I mean to give you a dose of reality. That in the grand scheme of things, most of us cannot actually do much in life. That our options and our abilities and our influence and our power are so very limited. However, there is one person who is not limited in the way that we are at all. And he not only has changed the world, but he will do so again. And I want to draw your full attention to him today. So if you would, please open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 5. Near the very end of the Bible, you'll find that Revelation 5. I have subtitled this series we're going through on Revelation as the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Because in it, we get powerful glimpses of who Jesus is and what he does. It's like the point of the book is to help us see him more clearly so we trust him more, worship him more, and look more forward to his return. Most recently, though, in chapter 4, John was led by Jesus into God's throne room in heaven, and we got this majestic picture painted for us of God the Father in his glory. And actually, I'm going to quickly read chapter 4 as we start, as it very much sets the scene for today. I'm going to go fast. I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to read this just so we know where we are. So chapter 4 goes like this. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. 
And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That scene set before us. Let's keep going. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look, inside, look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So this scroll is obviously a big deal, right? Why? What is it even? Okay, back in verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So this comes from God the Father's right hand, symbolizing his power and authority. And things were written on the front and the back of the scroll. What, you know what a scroll is, right? Just in case it's an ancient document or book that would be rolled up. And if it was an especially important document, it would be sealed with wax or clay. And this, and that was to keep the, the contents secret until they were meant to be read. Here in Revelation, this scroll is sealed up extra securely. It's got seven seals on it, the number of perfection. It's perfectly keeping its message secret. So, you wonder, well, why does it matter that it was written on both sides? Most likely, that just says how long and comprehensive this scroll was. Though it actually also harkens back to Ezekiel 2, where there's a scroll, which similarly here was revealed right after this majestic vision of God. And a scroll shows up that's double-sided. But again, what is this scroll? Why is it so important? Many theories have been given. 
but by far the most prominent one, and I believe by far the most likely one, is that it's a book containing God's plan for the future of his creation, including his judgment, our salvation, and the restoration of the world. In Revelation, the scroll appears to actually inaugurate God's final judgment, which kicks off all of the end-time events we know, ending world history and beginning the reign of Christ over the reborn heavens and earth. To sum up, opening the scroll would essentially bring God's plan for history to completion. It would end this world of evil and introduce eternity. As one scholar says, the scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. You think that's kind of important? Wouldn't you like to know what's in there? Well, sorry. Access denied. That's top secret. It's classified or redacted. Like, not for your eyes to see. Actually, it's not for anyone to see. I don't have that access either. No one does. And therein lies the problem. Did you see that in verse 2? It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is a mighty angel, a loud voice. It's an awe-inspiring moment. It, it silences the courts of heaven. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who has earned the right to open up this scroll? Who has the ability to open it? Who has the power and the authority? Who deserves to open it? It had to be someone worthy. Someone with the right authority, power, or deservedness. The angel wasn't just asking heaven this question, though. He was essentially challenging the entire universe whether they actually carried out a detailed search of the cosmos or this was rhetorical and they knew the answer, verse 3 gives us the bad news. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one could even just look inside it and read its contents. No one. Anywhere. No angel, living creature, cherubim or seraphim or saint in glory, no matter how morally perfect or powerful they are, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no human being, no matter how good or impressive or God-fearing, and no one under the earth, no righteous person from history who's been buried, or no one from the underworld, Either way, the answer is still no one. No one was found worthy. No one under, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look inside. Who is worthy? And Daryl Johnson asks, who indeed? Who is worthy to open up the plan of history and bring history to its foreordained consummation? Who is worthy to reveal God's plan of salvation and execute the plan on the stage of history? Who can understand the secret and put it into effect? 
Now it might make a little more sense to you why John breaks down and weeps here. It's in verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Like it wasn't just that they were missing out on a good book. Like a popular book release that gets canceled because of publishing issues. It wasn't just that all created beings were found so unworthy. It wasn't just that, that John wanted to know the secrets that were in this mysterious scroll. It wasn't just that John had a, a lousy night's sleep and was thus an emotional train wreck. No, it, it's that if this scroll wasn't opened, God's plan for history wouldn't happen. Evil would continue to go unchecked for eternity. Wrongs would never be righted. Injustice would reign supreme on earth indefinitely. Creation would never be restored. God's people would never be resurrected and vindicated and glorified. All God's plans would be frustrated. The kingdom would not come. It would mean that John had lived his entire life for a lie, a joke, or a hoax. I mean, things truly were hopeless and meaningless. Talk about devastating. No wonder he wept. He wept torrents of that. And I began to weep loudly or bitterly or greatly. All the, the breathless anticipation that had grown over who was going to open the scrolls dashed. And I think that we can put ourselves in John's shoes pretty easily when we consider our own surroundings. Do you feel the world is broken? Feel the shadows deepen. Is all creation groaning? Do you feel the, the hurt and pain that so many people live with in this life? Maybe your own. You see death all over. Like, it haunts everyone. No one can escape it. We even spread death to our fellow humans. Sometimes the most innocent ones out there. Do you, you sense the injustice, the injustice that just runs rampant in our cities and streets? I can tell you, a lot of protesters do these days. Do you know how much our Christian brothers and sisters worldwide suffer for Christ. Do you ever wish that Jesus would just come back and make everything right? Fix it all? And we long for this. And I think that the older we get, the more we long for this. <laughs> the more we see, the more we long for this. So, so what if I told you that it's hopeless. 
right? That, that things will never change for the better. Jesus won't return. Evil will win. Heaven will lose. We're all doomed. All because there's no one who is worthy of a or able to bring about God's ends for us. That's what John is feeling here. Feel that tension, the devastation, the hopelessness. Right, picture John or, or picture yourself standing in, in the most glorious, breathtaking scene imaginable and yet being so overwhelmed with despair that tears stream from your eyes. And cries and wails escape your lips. And, and sobs heave in your chest. Like if, if heaven can't do anything, what hope is there? But then someone walks over to you and tells you to stop crying. That's what happened. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold... The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So, one of the elders, that was from chapter 4, drew John's attention to something he hadn't noticed yet. Were things hopeless? Yes, without Jesus. But, behold, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We're going to look at this more closely, but first, here's the main point of all this so far, okay? The lion is worthy to bring about God's ends because of his history-fulfilling victory. Okay, the lion, that lion of Judah, that's Jesus is worthy to bring about God's ends or purposes because of his history-fulfilling victory, because he's conquered, it says. So the elder points to Jesus and says, Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That title goes all the way back to Genesis, when Jacob was blessing his children on his deathbed. When he addressed his son Judah, he said somewhat cryptically, yet prophetically, this. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet." From this, he was saying that Judah would be fierce and strong and intimidating, and that he'd be king. But Judah himself never got to be king over his people. That was saved for his descendants, his tribe, and one descendant in particular. The other guy mentioned in this verse, so Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. David, of course, was Israel's greatest historical king. And another ancient prophecy from Isaiah, we read this earlier, said this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's dad, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon 
him. Now, Jews understood this passage was all about their Messiah, their coming Savior King. They knew he would come from both Judah and David and would therefore be the rightful ruler of God's people. And now, here's John seeing someone declared as both the, the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. It means he is the rightful heir to the throne. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And what he had done is what made him worthy to open the scroll and bring about God's ends. It says, weep no more. Behold, the light of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Conquered is the same word that Jesus used repeatedly in chapters 2 and 3. To the one who conquers, or overcomes, or is victorious, I will give. And so, so Jesus, we see, he's the original conqueror. He overcame. He won the victory. And his victory is the basis for our own. We only conquer through him. We might wonder, what did Jesus conquer? Well, if you think, what did he, he challenge the churches, the saints to conquer? He was telling them variations of hold fast to your faith through the trials of this life. Or don't lose heart. Don't give up. Or resist compromise. Stay faithful until the end. Stay persevere all the way until death. And Jesus had done all this. And what's more, he had conquered over death itself. He had come to earth, lived a sinless life, resisted evil every step of the way, stayed faithfully obedient even to the point of death, defeating our sin once for all, and then three days later rose from the grave and the lion roared. <laughs> His history-fulfilling victory includes his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Like, this is the heart of the gospel. And notice, verse 5 says that one of the reasons he did all of this was so that he could open the scroll and bring about God's plan for history. One of the purposes of the gospel. Because of his Past victory, the Father entrusts him with his sovereign plan for the future. And then we come to perhaps the most stunning moment in this passage. At this point, John's been told to look for a lion. But then he sees something else. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We're expecting to see a majestic lion. A mighty warrior, a conquering king. Instead, we see a little lamb, and a mortally injured lamb at that. 
Eugene Boring calls this perhaps the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in literature. It's not that the lion is replaced by the lamb. He is the lamb. Between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, this mentions the other less glamorous and yet no less glorious side as to why Jesus is worthy. So the lion, you see, is worthy to bring about God's ends because of his history-fulfilling victory. And the lamb, the lamb is worthy to bring about God's ends because of his ransoming, transforming death. The lamb is worthy to bring about God's ends because of his ransoming, transforming death. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It looked like it had been killed. It had some kind of wound that appeared fatal. But it was standing up. Dead things don't stand. Exactly. And as we'll see, the point was that it had been slain. It didn't just look slain. It had been slain, but was now alive. Slain, literally slaughtered, yet standing, risen from the dead. Verse 6 goes on to say that the lamb had seven horns. Horns are a common apocalyptic symbol representing power and strength. So though he had been slain, he was strong and mighty again. Conquering lamb, if you will. It also had seven eyes, which John says stand for the seven spirits of God sent out to earth. This emphasizes how how closely God the Son and God the Spirit, the the all-seeing Spirit, work together. Now, these symbols, the horns and eyes, may seem like really strange imagery until you know that they actually allude back to prophecies in Daniel and Zechariah, respectively. They talked about this. The imagery of a lamb echoes back throughout Scripture as well, even more so, all the way back to Abraham, assuring his son Isaac that God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And to the Passover lambs in Exodus, when when God told his people to to kill a lamb, spreading its blood on their doorposts so that God's wrath would pass over them. And to Isaiah's suffering servant who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And that picture really culminates with John the Baptist proclaiming loudly and, and pointing right at Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The rest of the New Testament keeps the picture going. Acts 8 says Jesus was Isaiah's slaughtered lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 calls Jesus our Passover lamb who was sacrificed. And then we come here to Revelation and behold a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And this lamb is exalted beyond belief. Chapter 7 In chapter 22, we're actually going to learn that the Lamb shares God's throne. The Lamb is on the throne. So, given who this Lamb is, he's nothing short of God himself. And given what this Lamb had done, 
sacrificing himself to ransom us. The lamb could do what no one else in the universe could do. Look at verse 7. And he went, that's the lamb, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He walks, just walks up and takes it. No other created being would dare to do this. But Jesus does. Because he can. Because he has a right to. Because he's worthy. And see what happens after this. The lamb is worshipped. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As one pastor puts it, Jesus takes the scroll and all heaven breaks loose. We usually think of, of harps as calm, peaceful instruments. But in ancient times, harps were seen as festive and joyful Maybe like we view a fiddle, or a flute, a banjo, or an electric guitar. The gist here is that as, as Jesus takes the scroll, music breaks out across heaven. Okay? Excitement is rising. The, the drama is building to a climax. The theme is reaching a crescendo. Verse 8 mentions in passing, that the heavenly beings were holding golden bowls full of incense. And, and John tells us that these represent the prayers of the saints. Why bring up prayer here? I don't know for sure, but I can submit one really encouraging reason. Our prayers, our worship as a whole, but prayers specifically here, are brought before God. They're, they're pleasing to him, like sweet-smelling incense. And our prayers will provoke a response from the Lord eventually. Even if we have to wait until the end of time, our prayers will make a difference because of where they are. So whenever you're, you're hurting or tempted or anxious, bring it to the Lord. Keep praying and trust that your words are, in fact, reaching his throne. Well, once the music starts playing, there's got to be a song, right? Yes, look with me, verse 9. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you! to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And what a reversal from John's despair and weeping earlier, right? Life isn't hopeless after all. Life isn't hopeless at all. Because Jesus is worthy. 
And this is where we can really see the big idea I gave you here. The lamb is worthy to bring about God's ends. It says, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is because he is worthy because of his ransoming, transforming death. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's first consider how his death is ransoming, all right? To, to ransom something is to, to buy it back or to purchase its freedom. It was especially used when talking about freeing prisoners. Imagine for a minute... Just put yourself in, in a story that, you're, that you were involved in a war and captured as a prisoner of war. You are then taken to a country far away from your home and put to forced labor. While there, you're mistreated, undernourished, flat out abused by your captors. Like they're, it is either before the Geneva Convention or they're just breaking it. Okay? You are woken up early every morning, given hardly anything to eat, and marched out to work, where you, where you labor as a slave for hours in the burning sun or the freezing cold. You're beyond miserable, doomed to suffer indefinitely and to eventually die. Then one day, someone, maybe an officer from your home country shows up, and talks to your captors. And he offers to pay them if they'll let you go free. They agree. And soon, you're on a flight back home. Can you imagine your relief at that moment? Your joy? You'd be elated to be free. But then you hear the payment that was demanded to release you. They said that they'd let you go free if the officer took your place in the prison camp. And as you, as your plane takes off, you actually hear the guns of the firing squad go off. But reality, this is very much like what has happened spiritually through Jesus. On our own, we are captive slaves to our flesh, to our desires, to the devil. We cannot escape. Sin makes us miserable, and we're doomed to die. But one day, Christ showed up and exchanged places with us, giving himself up to a, a miserable death on the cross so we could go free giving his life, as he says, as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 really brings this all together, saying, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what's, amazing, what's super amazing about this is that when Jesus submitted himself to what looked like defeat, he was actually winning his greatest battle ever. 
Did you notice? Verse 5, it said that Jesus is worthy because he conquered, but then verse 9 says he is worthy because he died. Which is true? Both. Right? He conquered by dying and rising again. He's the lion and the lamb. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. Grant Osborne explains, here lies the great paradox of Christianity. Victory comes from apparent defeat. Evil is conquered through the terrible sacrificial suffering of the cross. If you have not accepted Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, you're still effectively living in that prison. You haven't been freed. But know this today. Price has been paid. It has. I urge you to let his blood pay for your freedom today. No, you don't deserve it. Can't earn it. It is the grace of God. If you think, well, I couldn't let anyone else go through that on my behalf, he already did can't stop him. So, so don't reject his gift out of some misplaced pride. You will never free yourself. We need Jesus' power to ransom us. So run to him. And if you think Jesus' blood only affects you when you're initially saved and then never again, think again. His blood doesn't only ransom us, it purifies us. It washes us clean. It transforms us. Besides, once we've been ransomed, we should never forget it. It should radically affect the way we live every day. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I don't know who needs to hear that today. Are you living as though you still own yourself? You belong to Jesus. And Jesus ransomed you, purchasing you, as our passage today says, for God. For God. You belong to him, so is that evident about you? Is that evident about me? Is that evident about us? Finally, notice that Jesus' death wasn't just for you. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation, language and people and nation. So Christ has ransomed a global and diverse people from every people group on earth. Now, I don't have time to go into this deeply today. I actually hope to talk a lot more about this in the weeks ahead. But biblical diversity is a heavenly value. The, the tribal, linguistic, ethnic, racial, national, generational diversity of the church was bought with Christ's precious blood. 
That should make us thankful. That should make us protective of the church's unity here. And it should make us eager to see the gospel spread to all nations of the earth. Jesus' ransoming, transforming death, his ensuing victory was really the central point of all history. His victory at that time is what ensures his victory in the end. Isn't it striking to hear here how focused heaven is on something as gruesome as the cross? Like you'd think that they'd want to focus less on death and more on life, less on blood and crucifixions, more on banquets and celebrations. But as Jim Elliff comments, heaven does not get over the cross as if there are better things to think about. Heaven is not only Christ-centered, but cross-centered and quite blaring about it. May we likewise never get over the cross. And in verse 10, don't miss the whole transformation aspect of the gospel here. He doesn't only ransom us, he makes us new people. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So he transforms us corporately into a glorious kingdom worthy of heaven, which, mean, which it adds means that we will reign with him one day. And he makes all of us individually priests. It means we have access to God now it means we have a role to play now to witness and worship him notice that we are now a kingdom and priest again to our God our whole redemption is for God it's all meant to go to him we serve and live and reign for him we are part of his kingdom. It's all for him. So it says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming his excellencies is exactly what happens here in Revelation 5. It started with the elders and living creatures in verse 8 through 10. They're the, the worship leaders, if you will. But the worship of the Lamb ripples out exponentially from there. And we see how really all of history has been divinely orchestrated to this end, to, to ransom and transform people through Jesus for worship. Because he's not only to worthy, worthy to bring about God's ends, the Lamb is worthy to receive all worship from everything forever. The Lamb, Jesus, is worthy to receive all worship from everyone and everything forever. Let's see this. In verse 11, an enormous host of angels joins in the song. It says, Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I don't think we have any reference for a scene this powerful. 
We can't even picture it. Like a, a myriad was the highest number known in the Greco-Roman world, at least 10,000. And this was myriads upon myriads of angels, likely millions, uncountable. Now, I was in the Canadian Tire Center a few years back when the Senators made the semifinals, started blowing out the Penguins, you know, back when they're actually an NHL team. I have never heard a louder building in my life. 18,000 people strong, cheering and chanting together, go, Sens, go. I mean, it was thunderous. Like things like that, maybe a, a huge concert or a, a big march, like these are the, the closest things we get to crowds that large making that much noise in unison. So, Multiply that number a hundredfold. Add the power of, of loud, supernatural voices. And can you imagine why John comments on what he heard when he looked? Did you notice that? He said, then I looked. But he doesn't say what he saw anymore. He was blown away by what he heard. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So this is what Jesus is worthy of. Are we doing all we can to give it to him? Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Seven things. Obviously intentional. Seven words. Because he is worthy of perfect, complete praise. All worship. So as Worshiping him, a defining aspect of our lives. I hope it is. And we want this to be the defining aspect of everyone who is part of our church. And how might you open your mouth to praise Jesus today? Who can you talk to? What can you say? What can you post? Like, can you sing something with your friends or your family? Like, don't shy away from Jesus. History certainly won't. And if worship is not a defining aspect of your life, why not? Like, are we just distracted by other things? Are we... Worshiping ourselves, God forbid. Zarek Mason says, be careful what you allow to define you. 
it had better be something worthy of it. And nothing is more worthy than the lamb who was slain. So may we join in the song of heaven with everything we've got. Worthy are you, Jesus, our, our slain and risen lamb to receive the power, receive the wealth, receive the wisdom, receive the strength, take our honor, take our glory, take our blessing. Like this is what we were made for. And we'll join in one day whether we want to now or not. Look, verse 13. And I heard... Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying. So every creature, every angel, person, animal, all voices, all places, including you, including me, here's our part. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Here the, the themes of chapter 4 and chapter 5 really come together as one. In chapter 4, we saw that God the Father is worthy of all worship. Now we see that God the Son is equally as worthy as the Father. To the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The chapter ends with a final fitting response from around the throne. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. They hear the, the roar of creation, clamoring for the glory of God. Go, let it be so. And then they fall on their faces and keep on worshiping. In a broken world, that desperately needs salvation and transformation. We need Jesus to fulfill history, save us, and to initiate God's kingdom. The good news is, he's going to do just that. And for it, he will be praised forever as worthy. The only question is, at what point do we join in the song?